I wanted to talk tonight about how to work with difficult emotions in the context of the meditation practice. And first I'd like to present a bigger picture or a larger context within this topic fits. The Buddha taught one thing. He taught about suffering and the ending of suffering. And this is what drew me to this practice, the simplicity and the purity of that. Just about suffering and the ending of suffering. Historically, the Buddha was a human being, not a goddess or a god, but a human being just like the rest of us, which to me is incredibly inspiring. He became what is called enlightened, fully awake. He reached his deepest inner potential. And because he was a human being, this is something that we can all know is possible for us, that we can reach our deepest, fullest potential as a human being. Meditation is a giving birth to this full potential that is actually already within us. It's awakening to the truth within us. And I'd like to ask you to remember the talk I gave the other night about the birth struggle that a butterfly goes through in its metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a cocoon to a butterfly. It's only through this very difficult transformative process that the butterfly can develop strong wings, strong enough to be able to fly. I'm using this as a metaphor for the spiritual journey, all of our journey. This birth struggle that we have to undertake if we're willing to undertake this process of awakening. We all need to develop strong wings. And it doesn't come easy. It's our own unique birth struggle. One of the things that I've found particularly important for myself on this spiritual journey is to ask myself, many times what it is that I most deeply want in my lifetime. And you might just reflect on what it is that you most truly desire. If you look closely, you might answer, I'd like to be more loving, or I'd like to be more compassionate. I'd like to experience a sense of well-being or peace. Or I'd like to stop fighting with things and people and situations. I'd like to be able to wish other people well. I'd like to be free from suffering. The Buddha taught that life is inseparably tied to what he called dukkha, or suffering. Dukkha is often translated as meaning suffering. The first noble truth says that all life is suffering. And often people have difficulty with this translation, and I think rightly so. Dukkha or suffering means something much deeper than pain or misery. In terms of this birth struggle, it often means awakening 
to the lack of true contentment in our life. It's awakening to this current or stream within us of dissatisfaction. Often when we come on retreat and we come into the hall and sit down and just watch what's happening for even five minutes or maybe a half hour or an hour, it's really incredible to see how little peace there is. We're at war with ourselves and with what's happening. There might be several moments within a half hour that we go, ah, ah, you know, we let go. And there's that moment where we feel this potential, this kind of happiness. And that's why we sit. And the rest of it seems like turmoil and dissatisfaction. And this is what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about dukkha. This lack of contentment. And the the origin of this dukkha is within ourselves. It's not coming from outside. The deepest meaning of dukkha is that our existence as human beings is marked by insecurity. And there's actually three different definitions of dukkha or levels. The first is called dukkha dukkha. The second is called anicca dukkha. And the third is called sankara dukkha. Dukkha dukkha means painful feelings in the body or the mind as well as old age, disease, and death. Anicca dukkha means that we have no control over what is going to happen, that there's this insecurity or uncertainty and vulnerability moment by moment, this constant change. And this includes that pleasant experiences pass, and that usually we experience a deep sense of loss. Anicca means impermanence. The third, Sankara Dukkha, is much more difficult to see. And it means how quickly formations are arising and passing. It means that if you look very, very closely, moment to moment, that formations are vanishing, that they're so fleeting and insubstantial. If we're apathetic or indifferent to the lack of contentment within ourselves, then there will be no search in our life for understanding. And this means that we're basically spiritually asleep. The first step in developing strong wings is awakening. It's the willingness to look at what's actually happening. And this willingness to look is something that is so ephemeral sometimes. (laughs) I read recently that when um, some of the children were on their way into the gas chambers, in uh, Nazi Germany during World War II, that they would scratch butterflies with their fingernails into the wood on their way into the gas chamber. And reading this had a very powerful impact for me, that children are usually much closer to the truth and have that sense that our spirits 
spirit can never be killed. That no matter what, it will be kept alive, even if you're killed. And the spirit is awakening to the truth within us. And the willingness to look, like I said, is quite ephemeral. This year, earlier this year, I was invited to go into an army hospital in Honolulu and work with a girl who had um, cancer. She was six years old. And I wasn't told the situation in much detail, and I was supposed to come in and do some sand play with her. So I had this bag of toys and a box of sand, and um, I came in, and her two siblings were on the floor playing, and she was undergoing this unbelievable amount of chemotherapy. And she already, a leg had been amputated, and her hair was falling out. She hardly had any more hair. And she was throwing up about every minute. And it was obvious to me it wasn't time to play. And it was so amazing to me that I was invited there to do that with her. First of all, just the denial that was going on. So I just walked in and was just trying to feel what was going on. And a doctor came in. It was quite an amazing scene. The doctor had combat boots and a camouflage outfit on and a mask. (laughs) It was an amazing scene. And he started poking her and trying to tickle her. And he said, come on, smile, it's not that bad. And I thought, it's not that bad. It looks terrible to me. It was horrible. And everybody, you know, her mother, the whole, the siblings, everybody was trying to pretend that it wasn't that bad. And she was about to die. And actually, it wasn't, you know, she could have coped with it if somebody had said, yeah, this is really terrible. She might have even been able to smile. This unwillingness to look at the truth is what kills the spirit. Nothing was wrong with her spirit. There was something wrong with the spirits of a few people around her. Because this unwillingness to look is so strong in us. All of us. I'm not telling the story to try to make fun of anyone or to blame anyone. We're all in this soup. So in regard to working with difficult emotions, I notice that most people, when they surface or become visible, they think that something is wrong. And it usually means that the process of purification is working. It means usually that the darker energies that usually are hidden are merely becoming visible. Being able to face this, face them, and being willing to learn to work with them is what enables us to develop strong wings. And just to mention that if you don't happen to have difficult emotions surfacing at this point, don't get your shovel out. (laughs) It doesn't mean that something isn't right. (laughs) I've had a lot of people listen to this talk and think that they better get some heavy-duty anger coming up. You know, if if you don't have any (laughs) coming up, great, just enjoy it. (laughs) But if you do, or for future reference, um, (laughs) this is an offering. (laughs) So there's nothing wrong if they aren't coming up as well. There's a very strong emphasis in this practice, 
in Buddhism on what is called the Four Divine Abodes. And they are metta, or loving-kindness, which means being able to extend a feeling of care and love to all beings unconditionally. And the second is compassion, or karuna. And this is the ability to feel and care very deeply about the suffering of others. The third is called sympathetic joy, or mudita, and that's the ability to feel joy in other people's happiness or success. And the fourth is equanimity, having an evenness of mind in the ups and downs of life. And they're not categorized usually as, emo- as emotions, but these are very positive spiritual emotions. They're very deep. And if you reflect about these a bit, you might see that they involve our relationship to other beings, not just human beings, but all beings. And they cut through any kind of sense of separation or division or alienation that we might feel, any kind of loneliness on the path. And there are the opposites of these that most of us are fairly familiar with if we're honest with ourselves. So the opposite of loving-kindness is hatred or anger. And the opposite of sympathetic joy is envy or jealousy. The opposite of compassion is cruelty. When people begin to practice, they think that they should somehow already have these developed, these wonderful positive emotions of metta, loving-kindness, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy. And when their opposites occur, say if jealousy occurs, we usually take our enormous wealth of self-hatred and dump on ourselves rather than learning how to work with it. And there's a repression that happens rather than an ability to know and work with difficult emotions, to understand that jealousy can become workable. When they become workable, an enormous gratitude can appear. Because these are actually our greatest teachers. They're actually our greatest friends. Because these difficult emotions awaken us. They alert us. And they make us search very, very deeply and fully. It's very painful to be jealous. It's not like we want to be jealous. It's very painful to be angry. It's not like you're sitting there wanting to be angry. It's important to understand that. If anger arises, it's possible not to repress it or indulge in it. There's a middle way, which is being able to acknowledge it and feel it and let it go because it's appeared, because it's there. It's that willingness to be with the truth, that it actually is there, even though we don't want it to be there. Freedom is very, very interesting. Many people have this idea that freedom is getting rid of these difficult emotions. But what happens if they come back? What happens if you're sitting there and sadness comes up and all of a sudden 
That didn't last long. That's over with. Phew. And then a half hour later, sadness comes up again. Does freedom mean that sadness doesn't arise at all? Or does it mean that we know how to work with it when it appears? That we don't repress it and that we don't get overwhelmed by it. We don't indulge in it. What's the difference between indulging in these emotions and repressing them? When I first began to do meditation retreats for about the first ten years, (laughs) just to keep it in perspective, whenever the wake-up bell would ring, I would immediately feel guilty. It was amazing, just the sound of the bell, guilt, very, very quick. And it was really extraordinary to see that for ten years. It's a great example of how powerful the emotion of guilt is. So the bell would ring and I'd feel guilty and I'd believe it. And all the way to the bathroom, I'd feel like I was lazy. And I just whipped myself with all my self-hatred all the way to the bathroom for being so lazy for sleeping so long. And I'm not kidding. Over years, I learned how to become friends with this guilt rather than it being my enemy. And it was my best teacher because it became a guideline for how to work with all of the other more difficult emotions. The first three years of working with guilt, the bell would ring, and I would just totally indulge in it. It was indulgence. I would believe it. I would feel lazy. I whip myself. Yeah, you slept too late. Yeah, you're so lazy. You're no good. And then there'd be this huge pool of blood around me by the time I got to the bathroom. And I'd just keep whipping and whipping. There was no mercy and no compassion. And you might think this sounds exaggerated, but it isn't. And I see many of us doing this. It doesn't really matter what it is. For me, it was feeling lazy. That was my conditioning. But whatever it is, we take a feeling and we expand on it until we feel totally worthless and no good. So I watched this for about three years. And then I went through a period of fighting it. It shifted from indulgence to the fight. I became aware of the indulgence, but I wanted to get rid of the guilt. I thought that if I was aware of it, I'd bargain with it. And so I'd wake up every morning, and I felt like if I put up with it, that somehow it would go away. For the next three years, (laughs) this is what happened. I'd have this fight going on (laughs) because I didn't want it. That's six years, and I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) And then one morning I woke up and this little white flag appeared, and the trumpet sounded. (laughs) I thought, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I should try accepting that this is happening. Maybe I should try accepting that this is happening. It was a really deep insight. (laughs) And instead of fighting it, I started learning that I could start accepting that it was there. And it was about another three years (laughs) of making friends with it. Part of making friends with it is understanding that it probably will still be unpleasant. And that within it, it's being able to see very clearly that it's not my guilt. It's not your guilt. It's not your anger. It's just this energy that arises and passes. And it's the identification with it that causes the suffering. The white flag 
is the beginning of coming to some kind of peace with it, learning that you can be present with it because it appears and not to have to identify with it. So there's the acceptance and the non-identification that brings the peace. The war is over. Whenever you work with something for this long, (laughs) you start to get a feeling of really being able to work with it. And there's a very deep sense of happiness and joy that comes with it, even when it's unpleasant. You know what you're practicing for, and you have some kind of reference point whenever it gets difficult. And the real crux of if you've licked it is if it appears two years later and you start to fight with it again. If you start fighting with it again, you know, you just know that you're not seeing it clearly. That's all it is. You're identifying with it. And seeing clearly is having strong wings. The freedom is being able to let these things come and go and not be bothered by them. When you're bothered by anything, you know you're caught. Whatever it is, whether it's a sound or a physical sensation or sadness or anger, whatever it is, if you're bothered by it, you're not seeing it clearly. There's this constantly changing process going on of physical sensations and sounds and emotions and mental states. And it's possible just to let the whole thing, the whole show, just come and go. There might be the sound of the wind, the sound of a bird, and then sadness, and the sound of a fly and then anger, whatever it is. Whenever we're bothered by something within that, that's when we're suffering. It took me a very long time, sometimes it seemed like ages, to understand that what meditation is developing is an attention that can see clearly that isn't identifying. And this is a strong mind. And one needs a strong mind because of this insecurity that us human beings take birth within, that we call life. Freedom and the happiness in meditation isn't based on experience. It's not based on getting any experience. It's based on the ability to have the strength of mind not to be overwhelmed by what is happening. It's the difference between having to go into a cocoon, which is repression, and indulgence, which means totally drowning. This balance of mind, this middle way, is what the practice is all about. It means developing a strong mind, strong wings, to be able to fly in life. I'd like to talk a little more about, in detail, how I found it helpful to work with emotions in practice, because emotions are very, very sticky and very tricky. I find them to be the most difficult thing in practice to work with. So I'd like to talk about first recognition and acceptance. When you're sitting, often you don't realize that an emotion is present, a difficult emotion is present. There's just a feeling of being off somehow. Somehow we're wandering, the attention is just not there, and we really don't know what's going on. 
And this can be happening for quite a while, this feeling of being off. And you might even have a story going on in the mind, you know, fantasy, book writing, letter writing, vacation plans, (laughs) redecorating the house, whatever it is. There's a feeling of not being able to be present. You may be fighting an emotion at this point. You may be having aversion to it, condemning it, without even being aware of it. And that's why I'm saying that the first step in working with difficult emotions is recognition. Without the awareness of it, there's no ability to work with it. If you happen to notice that if you're very rarely present in a day or in a sitting in life, um, you might have a glimpse of how much we're actually off. We're actually off a lot. And there's no possibility of working with what's there until we become aware that we're off. And the next step after this recognition is acceptance. By acceptance, I don't mean allowing oneself to be overwhelmed. It's not blindly indulging in what's there. And this is very important because many people interpret acceptance as meaning getting overwhelmed by it rather than just allowing it. The most difficult part of a difficult emotion is the resistance to it. It's the resistance that's the suffering. If we can accept that anger arises, then we can work with it. But if we're fighting it, and what's happening, then what's happening is fighting or resistance. There's two things that can happen when resistance is happening. One is that we'll go off in a fantasy, go off on a vacation for ten minutes, five minutes, one hour, five lifetimes, whatever you believe in, two days. That's one thing that can happen. Another thing that can happen is that we try to feel the emotion through the resistance. And we can't do that. When resistance is happening, it's resistance, not the emotion. And it can get very frustrating. Say if anger arises, for example, and you accept it, that's really major. That's the big leagues. (laughs) If you can actually get that far, if you can recognize the anger and accept that it's there, It's so powerful. And if the resistance is there, it's not anger that's happening, it's resistance. Another example, if sadness is happening and you're not wanting it and you try to feel the sadness, it's very frustrating because in that moment, sadness isn't happening anymore. Resistance is happening. And what we don't want to feel is the resistance. And that's what's going on in that moment. And we'll try to feel the sadness. <laughs> and that's why it's so frustrating, because that's not what's happened. It's too quick. It goes from the sadness to the resistance so quickly. And it's very important to accept that a lot of the times with emotions, it's the resistance that's happening. and understanding that the resistance is okay. It's just like being with the sound of a bird or a pain in the knee. One can learn to be with the resistance. It just comes and goes, and we can learn to be aware of it. The way that I've learned to work with resistance is when I become aware of it and accept it to drop into my body area and feel it as body sensations. 
It might be that you notice a tight posture. Or you might notice a feeling of being contracted in some way. It's usually very helpful to feel the body and what's going on within the body because it's so easy to get sucked into the holidays. And the holidays are the indulgence. If you feel like feeling the resistance is too unpleasant, which sometimes it is, you can just go back to the breath. So it's not to push it, just to, just to lightly feel whatever's there, and then to go to the breath. Sometimes if you um, have a strength of mind, you can go to the breath, go to the resistance, go to the breath, go to the resistance, So there's a kind of movement of attention that's not getting stuck in either the resistance or staying away from it. But one just keeps checking in with it and feeling it. I'd like to focus on working with anger. This is very arbitrary, but I find that it's an emotion that many people have difficulty with. Say you're sitting and anger appears. If this kind of feeling happens, oh no, anger, I hate it, that's resistance. The opposite is when you can go, oh great, anger, my best friend. And I've learned to exaggerate it over the years. I mean, most of us don't go, oh boy, anger's here. We don't usually do that, but you can just get a feel for the difference between, oh no, not anger again, and oh, okay. It's another opportunity to explore anger, like it's another opportunity to explore the sound of a bird. They are equally important, and they are both experiences that we learn to tolerate as human beings, when we open. If you're very clear, especially if there's a lot of mindfulness and energy, when anger arises and there's no resistance, the response can be very, very pure. You accept it, you drop into the body and feel the corresponding bodily sensations of the anger. There may be heat or pressure or tightness, a lot of different intense body sensations. And you just get out of the way. It's like letting a volcano erupt if it's very extreme. Several years ago I did a retreat on the big island in Hawaii where the volcano erupts a lot. And it was just like watching liquid fire pour into the sky. And it was the first time in my life that I actually had this very deep sense of seeing that energy visibly present. And there was a, a just an acknowledgement that that kind of energy is okay if you get out of the way. Not not indulge in it, not repress it. It's built up pressure usually. And there's a lot of heat, fire element. It's wonderful if you can get out of the way. That doesn't mean that it might be pleasant. It's usually quite unpleasant. But there's a joy in being able to feel anger and not identify with it and see that whole show just come and go. There's such freedom in it. You're no longer a victim of it, and you no longer have to keep running from it anymore, because it's an energy that we run and run and run away from so much in our lives. If there's that purity of attention, then anger isn't a problem. It's just the word anger. Anger is a concept. It's like the word Michelle, or rug, 
or bell or light. They're just concepts. And the experience of anger is very, very different than the word, than the concept. What is your experience of anger? Your actual experience of it, not the concept. A difficult emotion doesn't have to be a big problem if we're willing to explore it. This first way of working with a difficult emotion is when the attention is very clear. It's the ideal. It's when we're not identified with it and we can usually experience the corresponding bodily sensations quite easily. We just get out of the way and the anger passes. The next level is when there's more thought involved. And often emotions can be seen like the recipe for a cake. There's conditions. You know, like you take some salt and water and flour and eggs and sugar or honey and whatever and mix it all together and cook it and you get a cake. And emotion is very similar. You might take a memory and a body sensation and a thought and another body sensation and you put it together and you'll usually get an emotion such as sadness or anger. So sometimes with an emotion, you'll also have a lot of thought with it, and you might be identified with it. If you see, again, if it's anger, like the recipe for a cake, and you see that it's just body sensations and just thoughts coming and going, again, you don't have to be identified with it. You just notice that the thoughts are just thoughts and the body sensations are just body sensations. You might go back to the breath or whatever primary object you're using and just go back and forth between the breath and the body sensations and labeling the thoughts. This this level as well takes a certain degree of clarity. This is a strong mind which is still noticing the sensations and the thoughts coming and going. There's just more thought. The emotion might not disappear very quickly in this case. In the first case, the emotion usually isn't very sticky and will just arise and pass. In this case, it's a little more like bubble gum. It'll hang around longer. But one still isn't so identified with it, and it'll come and go eventually. The third level is when we become more identified with it, with the thoughts and the body sensations that arise, that we call anger. You know those signs that you sometimes see in front of houses that say, beware of the dog? (laughs) When this level is happening, just think, beware of the content. Beware of the content. Because it's the storyline, it's believing the thoughts that arise that cause us so much suffering in this third case. Back in 1984, when Sayadaw Upandita first came to uh, the United States, he came and taught a three-month course here at IMS. And for nine or ten years before this, whenever I did retreats, we never used notebooks or pens, especially in the hall. And he introduced this idea of writing down sometimes some of the things that happened during the sitting at the end of the sitting. So everybody in the hall had notebooks and pens And the idea was that you didn't write anything until the end of the sitting. And the woman who sat next to me in the hall used to write down 
pretty much like every five or ten minutes what was happening in meditation with a pencil instead of a pen. And after a while, just the anticipation, you know, she hadn't even written anything yet, just the anticipation of that sound of sort of like fingernails along a blackboard, the pencil scratching on the paper, you know, just the anticipation of it would just, I would just get completely swept away <laughs> in anger and terror that it was, she was going to pick up the pencil. <laughs> And I'd just get angrier and angrier. And then she would. She'd pick up the pencil and she'd write. And I'd get angrier and angrier. And the hardest thing about it was that I would feel right. You know, I'd come up with the content. It was unbelievable. She shouldn't be writing with a pencil. She shouldn't be writing during the sitting. She shouldn't be doing this. Why did he introduce notebooks and pens? It used to be so be- much better. And I had a great reason. Um, but I would notice over the time that I would get angrier and angrier the more wrong she got and the more right I got. And I'd be such a mess by the end of the sitting. I'd have to go out for a walk and it'd take hours for me to recover. And then I'd have to come back in the hall and face the next sitting with her, which would mean having to face the sound again and face the anger again. It was really painful. And as usual, you know, it just got to the point of such intensity and such pain. And the little white flag went up. You know, and the trumpets. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> Unless I leave this course, which I thought about many times. Other than leaving the course, there was nothing to do but surrender. And to start opening to that anger into the sound. This is the third level (laughs) I'm talking about because it's the identification with the content that was causing me so much pain. I believed very deeply that she was wrong and there was no way I could work with it. Whenever there's this identification with the thoughts This is the indulgence, and this is where we drown. And I've discovered that often when I get very involved in identifying with thought, that usually means that I'm avoiding the feeling. In this case, I'd get so identified with the thoughts, and then I didn't have to feel the anger. And again, it was a great teaching for me because I began to see that Getting involved in the thought is most of the time avoiding feeling the feeling underneath it. And it's a very important discovery. When you sit, you'll notice that certain thought patterns may repeat a lot. You know, it's like channel four and channel five and channel seven. You get these tapes, especially if you've sat a long time you'll see that they repeat over years certain thought patterns. If they repeat a lot, it's almost like it's torture when they appear. Again, it's like, oh no, not this one again. I can't, if only it was channel five instead of channel four. It's unbelievable. If you look closely, you may see that there's a feeling you're avoiding. And it's a very deep feeling that's very difficult to feel usually. And it'll take time and patience, but it's possible to just come back, instead of going right to the breath when this is happening, just come back to the body. You might not notice anything, you might notice a little bit. And just to do that over and over again before you go to the breath. It takes a lot of compassion for yourself to do this. You might get a little taste how to work with anger in one moment. You might get that sense of letting go and just letting it come and go. And then maybe two hours later, you can't do it. And it's not like that means that something's wrong. It takes practice. That's why this is called practice. 
And over time, the white flag has tremendous power because when we're at peace, we're not at war with what's happening. And we're not afraid. We don't have to control. We don't have to push away or run away from these feelings anymore. But it does take tremendous patience. The thing that's wonderful about our minds is that at any point, in any moment, we can wake up and see clearly what's happening. You might be three years into avoiding something, or five lifetimes, ten lifetimes, two hours. Whatever it is, in one moment, when you see it clearly, that's what matters. You've learned it in that moment. Patience is essential on the spiritual journey. It's defined as the ability to tolerate the desirable and the undesirable. It's said to manifest as tolerance. And it's said to develop, help us to, to develop trust. It might be that you learn how to work with a difficult emotion in a sitting in one month and then you get a lot overwhelmed again and repress it, or you indulge in it. And then in another sitting, you get a taste of how to work with it again. And this is why I mentioned my own process of learning to work with guilt, because it really did take me ten years to learn how to work with it. And once I learned to work with it, I learned to apply it to anything. And it's the same story. It's the little, little white flag. What's amazing about us human beings is that we have these imaginary wars going on all the time. It's like, if you look at, just if you look at the human body and you see what's going on in your head, you just take one sitting or one day and you just think of the wars that have been going on in this little territory we call our head. brings a lot of compassion if you understand this and understand that it's that white flag that's the beginning of peace. If you have an imaginary war going on, do whatever you need to do to get out of it because it's imaginary. It might mean that you're sitting and you do whatever you need to do to stop it. You might open your eyes. You might even stand up for a while. It means different things in different moments, but these wars aren't worth it. You can spend lifetimes trying to figure all this stuff out, and the content can drive us crazy. But it really means just, in the moment that we can, it means dropping down and just feeling the feeling and letting it go. And it's that simple. But you can't let something go like this until you feel it. That's a critical point. And the whole emphasis in Buddhism is in letting go. That's the freedom. Remembering that you can't let it go by pushing it away or going into thought. But you can, in one moment, go, oh, okay, hello, feel it. And when you feel it, it goes. It might come back 20 minutes later, or 10 minutes later, but so what? You feel it again. How many sounds are there in one's lifetime? How many breaths? How much sadness? It's learning to work with it. Let it come and let it go. Meditation isn't meant to solve all our problems. It's not meant to yield 
a lot of the things that I think sometimes we want or expect it to. It's working on a very, very deep level. It's meant to change our perspective entirely. It's The happiness that comes in this meditation is very subtle. I went to a Miles Davis concert earlier this year, and a lot of the concert was um, many, many people playing very loudly, and it was very loud and intense. And every once in a while, it was like Miles Davis was kind of teasing us. He'd kind of come down and walk way over to the edge of the stage, and he'd bend way over, and he'd put a mute, it was like a muffler, but he'd put a silencer on the trumpet, and nothing, it was completely quiet and still. Bend way over. And he would play the lightest, lightest, um, subtlest sounds, and there'd be so much silence in between them. It's like 15 seconds or 30 seconds. His use of silence was extraordinary. And it was like, at his best, as a master of jazz, there'd be the sense of one's heart being so touched and so tickled. Uh, and it was so um, utterly beautiful. And it was subtle. It was quite interesting to me because he did this, he didn't really play much until the end of the concert like this, and that's why I had come. And toward the end, people were starting to pour out of the place. And I knew that what they were very afraid of the traffic, and they were all anticipating getting caught in traffic. So at the best part of the show, and at the place where you had to be the most quiet and silent, um, people were just leaving. It was like the best music I'd ever heard, and they weren't even in touch with it. And I think that this is how this practice is. The happiness is subtle. It's not based on experience. It's based on being free of experience. So that no matter what is happening, no matter what is happening, there's that silence and stillness and ability to open to it, see it clearly, and let it go. And no matter what your story is, we all have a different story. We have some great stories. One thing we all share is that we never know what's going to happen next no matter what your story is. That's the really deep truth that we all share as human beings. And your happiness isn't going to come from what happens in your life. It's that subtle. The freedom is not getting overwhelmed by what's happening. And it's not going into a cocoon and die while you're still alive. It's just opening to each moment, moment by moment, without drowning, without repressing. It's the middle way. Let's sit for a few minutes. be free from suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.